haven't read enough comic books to know what actually is the purest answer to the age-old debate of DC versus Marvel. Now, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, basically the ultimate nerdy superhero comic book um, universes, the two main ones that exist are DC and Marvel. That's all about you need to know. Um, um, I know I'll be ruffling some feathers purely by bringing it up because some people really care. Um, and as much as I wish I had immersed myself into the world of comic books when I was younger, I am just a simpleton who got sucked in by the movies. <laughs> um, so I can't comment much on the OG comic books and the history of DC versus Marvel. But I remember when I was younger being told that whilst DC were obviously um, the superior team in terms of comic book creators, when it came to the movies, there was just no shadow of a doubt that the Avengers were world class in comparison to the Justice League. And I wanted to back the underdogs, I really did. I always want to get behind the people that we're not expecting to be the winners. Um, but I watched all the Avengers movies and the million other movies that Marvel have created. And then I watched the Justice League movie. Um, and I gave up all hope because it really is tragic in every way. And I want to really <laughs> encourage you, don't waste your time. It's the most underwhelming superhero movie you can ever watch. But in all of its faults, I did stumble upon an absolute golden nugget that comes right at the end of the film. The scene cuts to Lois Lane, who is Superman's girlfriend, and she's at her computer writing a new article for the newspaper that she works for. And she said something I found incredibly insightful. Darkness. The truest darkness is not the absence of light but conviction that the light isn't coming back. Darkness, the truest darkness is not the absence of light, but conviction that the light isn't coming back. And I really think God wants to challenge us this evening and have all of us ask ourselves that kind of question. Do you believe that the light is coming back? I know Lois Lane was referring to a different kind of superheroes, but in this passage, Luke is talking about the superhero. We're digging into a parable all about Jesus. It's a straight up warning and reminder and caution that Jesus is coming back. And we won't know when, but we need to be ready. It's meaty, I know, it's terrifying, yes. In fact, every time I've read this passage in preparation for this evening, it hasn't gotten any lighter or any easier. But you know what, I think that's a really good thing. Because sometimes in modern, charismatic Christian culture, we tend to make God a bit too fluffy. And don't get me wrong, he is compassionate and he's kind and he's gentle and he's tender and he's always, always full of grace, absolutely. But he's always calling us to more. Not because he's a pushy dad or an angry God, but because he loves us because he died for us, because he knows what's best for us, and because he, know, he knows what's to come. He knows what's next. So I would love us to eat into this passage together this evening and ask ourselves just two questions. And the first is this. Do we know that Jesus is coming back? In this chunk of scripture, we basically see Luke present us with three different um, kind of stories going on, three different parables, um, and they're all along a similar theme, but getting at slightly different points. So firstly, we had the story of the watchful servants waiting for their absent master, who was at the wedding banquet. 
And this story is all about, stick with me here, something called eschatological vigilance. Um, which basically, in other words, means having a watchful eye and a ready spirit for the day that Jesus returns and comes to judge the living and the dead. In this context, Jesus was revealing to the disciples that, yet again, he will be leaving them, even though they still didn't seem to get it, <laughs> and that there's this temporary banquet that he'll be at for a while. But then he will come back. He will come back. So they need to continue good works in his absence. And this isn't just relevant to the disciples. It's just as important to us today because we live in a time where Jesus is not here with us physically on earth. We are the servants waiting for our master to return. And so we must carry on the good works that he has called us to, the great commission that he has entrusted us with. Because the master will return and he will find us however we are, wherever we are. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and tap into all the controversial debates tonight by claiming that dogs are far superior to cats. Um, they're a million times better as a pet, and if you've got a problem with that, you can come at me afterwards. But it has been my absolute joy to grow up with dogs um, all of my life, and one particular dog has forever stolen my heart, and that is our family dog, Max. He is the most beautiful German Shepherd you have ever seen. Those of you who have met Max before would agree. If you don't, again, see me afterwards. Um, we have been the best friends of many years now. And there are many things I love about Max, but one of the things he does that always captures my heart and makes me feel incredibly, incredibly loved is this. Max will take it upon himself to sit guard at the front door, because German Shepherds in their nature are very loyal and protective. Um, even though he has a lovely, nice, cozy dog bed to sit in, he will choose to lay on the cold wooden floor in front of the front door, which is annoying when you want to leave the house, but it's glorious when you're coming home because Max can hear the sound of our car from over like 200 plus meters away, which is really cool because dogs have epic hearing. Um, he will then sit up and he will squish his nose against the door, against the window, <laughs> just waiting, ears pricked in position. And then he does the funniest thing. As soon as you put the key in the front door, he then turns round and sticks his bum to the back door, but looks, looks over at you. I don't understand why. But apparently, um, if dogs do that, it's a sign of them showing vulnerability and that they trust you, which is lovely. Um, but then you'll get into the house and you'll explode into full-on excitement and he'll run around and he'll bring all the toys to you and want all the cuddles and show you that he's been really good and not peed on the floor and not eaten all the furniture. And... He just shows you that he couldn't be more ecstatic that you're home. He literally had looked forward to nothing more than our arrival. And you know, when it comes to thinking about Jesus returning, I want to be just like Max. I want to have ears that are always switched on and a nose that is pressed up to the window in anticipation and a heart that constantly desires that Jesus would return because I miss him so much. I can't help but think that if we all lived a little more like loyal and excited servants, that we would see a radical transformation in the world. But there's also something that strikes me about Max's reaction. And it all, it's, it's this, it often leaves me thinking, did you not know that I was coming back? And I wonder how many of us here this evening struggle when we read these kind of passages, because we're not really sure what we think about this whole Jesus coming back again thing. Or we think it still won't be for ages and it's not really relevant to us. 
or we think that in some way it doesn't really matter because he's already done the important stuff. He died on the cross. He rose again, complete, big tick, the end. But that's not what Luke is expressing here. Notice of the, the wording of the passage, it says, when he comes and knocks, and it will be good for the servant. There's nothing maybe about it. Jesus was telling his disciples that he will go away and then he will come back and his return will be the moment that everything changes. It won't just be a like, oh, cool, Jesus is back, nice one kind of thing. Like when you're younger and your parents go out and you get crack on with a great movie and they come home and you're a bit like, yeah, nice, hope you had a good time. You grunt and wave a little bit and hope that they leave you alone. <laughs> no, this time when Jesus comes back, everything will change. Because this time he'll be coming back to judge the living and the dead. And he'll either be inviting us into eternal life on the new earth or he won't. And sure, some of us may be here thinking, yep, yeah, I don't have a problem with this. I know Jesus is coming back. The Bible's pretty clear about that. That's awesome. But then I want to challenge us further. I think this passage is also challenging us to have an eternal perspective. To lift our eyes to Jesus and actually realize it isn't all about this life here and now. But this life is a big gearing up for the one to come. This is the support act to the main event. This is the preparation for the eternal marriage. It's about living life in anticipation for Jesus to come back in glory, not living life to gain the most glorious setup that we can have on this earth. And that is really what the next two parts of the passage are digging into, the next two little stories. We have the warning that if you know the thief is coming, you wouldn't leave your house to get burgled. And again, this is just another reminder that we won't know the time. We, it will be unexpected, like a thief coming in the night. So we always have to be prepared and not leave ourselves open to destruction. And then we have the third story, the manager for the absent master. A story all about vigilance and readiness again, just like the first one. But this one takes it a step further. And this is also about fidelity and about wise behavior about being loyal servants and good discerning servants. And so that brings us to our second question this evening. Are we getting prepared or are we getting bored? You see, this whole thing is about going on a journey. It's a big nod towards the story of Israel in the Old Testament, how they were on a constant journey moving from place to place, um, wherever God sent them, whilst also waiting for their long-expected Messiah to come and save them. Like God literally said to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. Like how vague is that? <laughs> but do you know what that meant Abraham had to do? He always had to be ready. He always had to be attentive to God's voice. And so the Israelites always had to be dressed, ready for service with their lamps burning, like the first line we saw in this passage so that they could get up and they could go at a moment's notice. And in all of that journey, all of that journeying and all of that waiting, do you know what happened? They missed it. They didn't see it when Jesus came because he wasn't what they expected, because he didn't act in the ways they were hoping he would. They weren't prepared and they missed it. So Jesus is here this time warning us, don't do the same. The Israelites missed it, don't you miss it too. 
And if we start getting bored or losing hope or thinking that the way we live our life doesn't matter, then we will miss it. We'll have metaphorical servants that we start beating and we'll be overindulgent and we'll be incapacitated because when we take our eyes off Jesus and we fail to have an eternal perspective, then we'll just get sucked up into the emptiness of life that the world offers us and we'll turn to things that leave us with a full sense of power and a fruitless life. And that's why this passage sounds brutal because Jesus is really trying to stress that for some people it really is a matter of life or death. And for others of us, it's a matter of what you're bringing into eternity or what's waiting for you rather. What treasures you're storing up in heaven. This passage literally says, if you get bored and start acting out, you will be cut up into pieces and you'll go to the place of the unbelievers. Like, it's challenging stuff, guys. I don't think that's actually saying that's where you'll go, but I think Jesus is stressing that it might as well be the case. It's really tough challenging stuff because God wants more for us. And God wants us to step into all that's on offer and all that needs to be done. We have been entrusted with much. So much is expected of us. But this isn't about works-based love. This isn't about earning our way to reward or earning God's love because that debt has already been settled for us. Through Jesus' sacrifice, we now live in the light of grace. And God's grace is running all the way through this passage. This isn't about our effort and being on the good list. This is about being completely enamored with God. About being wholeheartedly convicted that his ways are better than your own. That the life he offers is better than the one the world does. And that Jesus is 100% worth it all. It's about being found doing the right thing because you want to, because you love God. Then the master will see that the servant is faithful and he can be trusted with all the master's possessions. And to make sure we don't get bored and we lose hope whilst waiting for Jesus then we need to use this time now we have to get prepared, to get ready. This is all about God preparing his bride for the eternal wedding. And around this time last year, um, my journey of preparing for the biggest life event I've had so far was about to start. Um, that was the journey towards marriage. Um, my now very wonderful husband um, proposed to me just under a year ago. And that sparked this journey of us having to prepare to marry one another. So my last year has consisted of lots of practical preparation, like getting a job, it's a good start, isn't it? Getting a flat, um, physical preparation, getting a dress, getting in shape, deciding what I was gonna look like on the day. But most importantly, it consisted of a lot of spiritual preparation. Spiritual preparation for the day that we will come together, make some really big, serious vows before God, before one another, and then become one person. Because as fun as all the wedding day preparations were, it was a marriage that we were heading toward. It was all the years to come after the wedding day that we were gearing ourselves up for. And that's just what it's like with God preparing his church, the bride. And there's being ready and there's being prepared in a lot of ways, I was, I was ready long before the wedding. I was ready a week into our dating relationship when Paddy told me he intended to marry me. 
It's very bold, I know. Um, but I had to wait in anticipation for the right day to come. And I had to use that time of waiting to prepare myself to keep pursuing and keep loving and keep learning. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to be doing now. He hasn't come back yet for a reason, clearly. Um, we don't know 100% why that is. But I can imagine a big part of it is that he wants to catch us off guard. Because then he will be able to see truly and purely where our hearts are and how faithful a servant we are to him. And also, he's given us time to prepare ourselves and prepare his bride, the church. So we need to push in, we need to take heart, we need to pursue him, we need to acknowledge that even though we might be ready for him to come back now, please Jesus, already, there may be still things for us to do until that time comes. Because Jesus is coming to collect his bride, the church, church big C. He's coming to cleave himself to her. So we need to be preparing his church. In this story, the reason it's not okay for the manager to know the master's coming and not care about that and start beating his servants and all this horrible stuff is because it infects the whole bride. Our pursuit of Jesus doesn't take place in a vacuum. We are one body. We are one bride. We've all got a part to play in preparing her. In this scene following Lois Lane's quote about darkness, the camera pans to a large ballroom space in a big empty mansion. And Batman is telling his butler what he wants to set up. And he points to the middle of the room and he says, big round table with six chairs. And then Wonder Woman steps forward and says, but with room for more. And Batman agrees with room for more. You see, we have to make sure we're ready and are waiting for the return of our long expected savior. But also he hasn't come back yet. And I imagine, like I've already said, that's because there's still work to be done. We've addressed the fact that there is preparation in our hearts that needs to be done and in our spirits that needs to be done. But also, the Bible tells us that God's heart desires that none should perish. He's pointing at the heavenly home, at the family table, saying there is room for more. Jesus didn't just endure the most excruciating and undignifying death for you and me and St. Aldate's, the end. No, he did it for every single human who has ever lived and who will ever live. And more than ever, we now live in a nation where people don't even really know the nativity story anymore, let alone the story of a God who came down to earth, took on the form of a man, died for them, rose again and conquered death, conquered their sins so that they could live forever in eternity with him. Like, if that truth was out there and no one had told you, wouldn't you be a bit peeved that people kept that from you because they were just a bit worried about it being embarrassing or it ruining their reputation or how you thought about them? There's more room at the table, and there's all of us. People created by God and for God, created uniquely with a purpose. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and so should we. Whether that's through the way we love the poor, or the way that we seek to save the planet, or the way that we work to create world unity and put an end to world wars, or the way that we evangelize to our colleagues. We can't 
back out and get bored in the waiting. We can't start buying into the lies that we've got no part to play in God's will or start believing that we're useless or ineffective or we can't get selfish and start seeking after our own earthly pleasure. We can't get swallowed by the darkness and lose all faith that the light will return. He's coming back for us, whether we're ready or not. And if Jesus is the one seeking, we don't wanna be found hiding or even worse, sleeping. When you're finally face to face with Jesus, the one who bled and died to save you, the lover of your heart, you won't wish that you've given less. You won't wish that you were less prepared. The time is now to pick back up the call-ins you've chucked to the side and the dreams that you've forgotten about. And the time is now to pursue Jesus more fervently than ever and to prepare yourself as fully as you can because he's coming back whether we're ready or not. Why don't we stand together and we're going to pray. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you that you are our long expected saviour who has already come and who has already died and who has already risen again and who has already offered freedom, forgiveness of sins and eternity to us. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who's so full of mercy and so full of grace. And that even though you call us some more and you draw us deeper with you, you're still right there to forgive us when we get it wrong or when we're not prepared or when we're not ready. I just pray that you would come tonight, Father, and you would start to challenge our hearts once again. That you would show us where we're not ready. That you would show us where we could be more prepared. And you would start speaking to us again about what it is you want us to do. We thank you that each and every one of us have a part to play in your will, Lord. And I pray that you would come and speak to everyone this evening, Jesus. Would you birth new dreams, Lord? Would you revive old ones? And would you fill us up and send us out with your great commission to go and see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? We love you, Jesus.